I, I always say this, that more important than what you achieve is who you're becoming as a consequence of the chase. We are born to chase. We're always going to chase something. Let's make sure we're chasing the right thing for the right reason. This is From Paint to Purpose, a podcast by FCP Services, where we believe people drive growth, exploring topics related to company culture, leadership, and construction industry insights. Now your host, John Barsness. Welcome everybody to this uh, latest episode of From Paint to Purpose. Uh, we are excited to have uh, Dr. Jim Lair, uh, author, speaker, and all-around uh, expert in high performance, particularly as it relates to uh, some key concepts that he's going to talk to us about today. Uh, Dr. Lair, thank you for being a part of uh, our podcast this morning. No, I'm uh, very uh, delighted to be able to join you, and I hope we can... Uh you know, create some uh, important uh, insights for people as uh, as they navigate through life. You talk a, a lot uh, and write a lot about uh, some key concepts that are uh, important for high performance. Uh, I'd like to unpack a couple of these and let you really kind of dive in as as you uh, think is is relevant around some of these key concepts. The first one is is really about uh, character and the people's uh, and a person's character. And I, from what I can gather, as I read uh, many of your books, part of this is is people first identifying their their what what is most valuable to them in terms of their core values. Uh, but how does that translate into high performance for people? So it's an interesting question, and it's been a very interesting journey for me. Um, I've been around a long time, and um, I've written multiple books on mental toughness and toughness training, and because I'm in the performance psychology arena, um, it was really uh, quite uh, shocking for me to realize that I've ended up in the character space as someone who's trying to drive extraordinary performance under pressure. Um, uh, we formed a company called the Human Performance Institute. I was a co-founder of that. And our mission was to help teams and individuals perform to the highest level possible in extreme environments. And this was a living laboratory. Probably today, some 400,000 people have gone through that intensive training. and. Uh, it created, we measure, I'm a, me, I'm a measurement guy. Every single thing that I can get my hands on, I love to get some kind of data around it. So um, when you checked in, we drew your blood, we had a comprehensive blood panel drawn. We put you then into a bod pod where we measured your lean body mass. And we were constantly collecting data and correlating it with outcomes in terms of what the mission you wanted to accomplish as, uh, as uh, your purpose for coming to the Human Performance Institute. And uh, uh, all the data kept moving us more and more toward the character space, that who you are, um, uh, most importantly, in terms of your honesty, your integrity, the way you treat other people, your respect for others, um, your humility, your generosity, your gratefulness, um, even even soft things or apparently soft like kindness and compassion, caring and love. What the heck do you think those have to do with competitive strength 
All I can tell you is it took almost 30 years. I wish I had known much earlier in my career this connection. Um, I came to refer to it as the hidden scorecard. We have this scorecard that uh, we worked with 17 number ones in the world and helped them get to where they'd never been or where most people even couldn't even dream of getting there. And we found that even though they accomplished the mission that they won an Olympic gold medal uh, or they became number one in the world in their sport, it only lasted a short time. And then all of a sudden they kind of felt a little empty and they, as the song goes, is this all there is? I killed myself to get to here. And so we began to delve a lot more deeply into, you know, where, what is the origin of their need to go out and do it again? It's almost like I need five gold medals. Maybe then I'll feel better about myself. But what we found was that there is something so compelling inside all of us. And I think it relates back to who we, who we were is who we are. Our ancestors who survived had to come together and had to really form a, a very tight unit in order to take care of one another, whether it was food or shelter. And those who went off and did their own thing, they didn't survive because the world was very tough. And so our ancestors basically found that survival was connected to your ability to relate effectively and to be um, a, an integral part of a unit, of a village. Um, and, uh, and then that grew into much larger communities as we've uh, seen today. But that hidden scorecard, if you score high on the achievement list and score low on how you treated people, if you compromised all kinds of ethical boundaries, if you cheated your way to the top, if you treated people badly with disrespect, if you walked over dead bodies to get to the top of the mountain, you could get to the top of the mountain, but it's very hard to have fulfillment and you probably won't stay there very long. We like to see our, our superstars become real people um, and really, you know, have a graciousness, a humility, uh, an honesty and integrity about them. And if they don't, we don't really celebrate their success. So it's a long answer, but we found that there are two forms of character. We found it very instructive. One is what we call um, performance character. And these are all the assets and they're acquired competencies that help drive achievement and things like focus and discipline and hard work and motivation and uh, and things like uh, your ability to really um, be very uh, strong-willed, um, grit, persistence, determination. There's a whole, you know, there's a very large um, you know, component to high performance that really is about these assets and these are all learned, they're all acquired, but there's no moral or ethical connection whatsoever. You can, Bernie Madoff had a boatload of these, but you also had a, pro, you also had a, 
uh, you know, as you'll see with some performers, you'll see that they have unbelievable performance assets, but they have moral and ethical deficiencies large enough to drive an 18-wheeler through. And, uh, and so the other category is what we call moral and ethical character. And this defines your rules of engagement for how you treat other people. And these are, these have no equal. This is where I start now in terms of really helping people understand if you want to be a fully functioning person and really have a happy life and a, a life of, of great fulfillment and accomplishment, you've got to get these assets first. And then you also have to have the performance assets and together you might be able to do something extraordinary. But without the moral and ethical, and those are not given front and center attention, maybe by parents, but schools, it's really hard for people to get into that space, even in corporations. Um, CEOs, you know, for uh, the Harvard Business Review uh, wrote a, an article and it revealed that over a four-year period, there was a 36% increase in the number of CEOs who were released due to moral and ethical issues. It was like um, unprecedented. And the pressures, the demands that are placed on high-ranking um, leaders, they have to make the grade. And if they don't, they, uh, they're not going to be there. And they have maybe a year, maybe two years max. And so they realize they got to get something done. So they might start fudging their third quarter results. They start making judgments that really are not according to good, good ethical practices. And then they get discovered and maybe one day they wake up and they're in full scale fraud. And so we, we did a lot of interviews, a lot of work in that space. And uh, there's just unprecedented uh, pressure on people to achieve. But performance assets are what you achieve. And moral and ethical assets define how you achieve those objectives. And for me, as a sport, as a performance psychologist, I have to pinch myself. How in the heck did I end up in the character space? Because uh, that used to be the really the, the territory of philosophers, not of, you know, folks who are trying to get people to do. Well, and I think that that, that discovery alone is really the marker for why people stumble to, to even understand what greatness looks like. Oftentimes, at least in, in, in the experience that I've had, People talk about high performance, whether it's in sports or whether it's in business or whatever it might be, but they actually don't know how to define it. And I think some of that comes from that hidden uh, ethical and moral grounding that you, you just described. So I'm curious how, how it plays out with people in the, in the sports arena, especially in, in high performance uh, around this, where they might believe that they have a moral uh, standard or an ethical standard and how easily it is for them to drift away from that while they're, while they're seeking after these outcomes instead of necessarily the journey to greatness. 
It's a really good uh, question that you raised because when we went out and we asked people if they or any of their colleagues really need training in acquiring these moral and ethical competencies, they all said, no, we got that. We, uh, that's one thing we all, it's not, you know, I, I'm, I got that one wired up really well. No one wants to believe they have deficiencies in that area. It's almost like if you say you have a deficiency in honesty or integrity, um, that you um, don't show respect, proper respect to people. You have a big ego, you're overly maniacal about taking praise for everything. You have very little humility, almost a narcissistic uh, chase for, um, you know, for praise and for recognition. And people won't admit that. They actually have to somehow portray to themselves and to the world that they're, they're a good person. Because if there is this virtuous connection to moral and ethical character, then the whole idea is being good and doing good. And, you know, being an extraordinary person means in this sense that you treat people with extraordinary um, uh, reverence, um, even though they don't deserve it in some cases, you really believe this is really who you want to be as a human being, as a leader. So, so we went deeper, and uh, in in the book Leading with Character, I identified twenty five ways that our own brain can dupe itself. That it's like, be very careful what you you ask of your brain. First of all, the brain wants, it exists to get you what you need to survive and then what you want and need just in life. And if you say, I want to be CEO or I want to be very successful financially, and you keep sending that message over and over again, the brain gets it. And the brain also figures out if you follow the path you're currently following, you're probably not going to make it. So you may have to take a few shortcuts. And then the brain has a problem because the brain, we do not want to feel guilty. We don't want to, guilt has a very, you know, uncomfortable, almost painful side to it. We all want to feel like we're a good person. So we've got to do this. The brain has got to figure out a way to get you to be able to do those things and to justify it so you don't feel guilty. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, there's this thing we call motivated reasoning or conformity dynamics or there's um, the kangaroo effect, groupthink, um, you know, obedience um, uh, to authority and compliance. And all of a sudden you figured out a way to do something that is actually quite wrong morally and ethically, but you feel fine about it. And you'll defend it with vigor. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble. So we're trying to raise the awareness of how easily, you know, hijacked your moral and ethical machinery can be. And you it has to be done out of your awareness. Because if you're aware of it, you can't get away with it. So you have to really believe that um, your 
the decision that you've made, you know, everybody does this, you know, it's like in politics, you know, the relationship between morality and politics, there is no morality in politics. It's like, you can do anything or say anything as long as it gets, you know, your party or the person you wanted elected. And the reason, and the people can do that because they believe it's for the greater good. And that this is the way, these are the rules of politics. Anything goes. So they make that up. So they do things, say things, they lie, they cheat, they steal, whatever they do, but they don't feel guilty about it. And that's why we can't stand politicians because they've lost the, they've lost their way morally and ethically over and over and over again. And so, uh, but that is just kind of the, it's just the tip of the iceberg because they think that only happens to politicians. It's happening to all of us. And that's why there's so many issues that um, are problematic in a corporate environment because people are, are not aware of how fragile, and that is the word, how fragile our moral and ethical machinery really is. Your brain's going to figure out how, how to get you there if you keep feeding that information. It's like if you want to buy a car that you can't afford, but you absolutely love that car, and you keep sending that message to your brain, it'll figure out a way to dupe you into that's the only car to buy, that's the only choice left, and you got to buy that car. And then you buy the car, and you realize... Why in the hell did I buy this car? Because I can't afford it. And But your brain got you there because you asked it to. So that self-deception is actually a, a really big factor in people's ability to um, fake their way to success, if you will, sometimes, where they believe that they've, they've actually achieved something in greatness that they actually haven't done, uh, but they've convinced themselves of it. Is that kind of where some of this falls in, into place? Self-deception is the broad category um, that, you know, there's things like rationalization. There's just a whole boatload of those, some of which I mentioned, conformity, dynamics, and so forth. Um, and they're all forms of self-deception. We, we really can't live with the truth um, because the truth won't get us where we really want to go. So we have to believe that, you know, your version of reality is actually the way it really is. And it's not. So I wrote a whole book called The Power of Story. And in that book, I really try to help the reader understand that we do not have direct contact with reality. We just don't. We have our senses, our five sensory portals are bringing information in to this neuroprocessor between our ears at an unbelievable, right now you're getting a lot of auditory and some visual data, and it's streaming in to this processing system, and the system has to make sense out of it. But we don't really have connection to the real world except through our senses. And then we have to interpret that what that data is, and then if we think it's... Uh, worthy of storage, we allow it in and we, uh, we find ways to integrate it into the knowledge base we already have. 
but there's a selective process that occurs. We tend to allow information in that's already consistent with what we have already learned and is consistent with what we really want. So it's a very biased system, but whatever the interpretation is that comes into our uh, the central processing system in our brain, um, whatever that, that becomes our reality. So that becomes our story. So our story is our, is our reality, but it may be miles from reality. I mean, it may not even connect in any way with the real world. And this is really a challenge for human beings, is to make sure that whatever version of the real world, there is a real world, I, I argue that, there is a real world out there, but you may not be living in it. You know, you, you get so far out, you know, then we start talking about mental health and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, people get delusional about their own importance, about what they've done in life. And it's actually happening to preserve the sense of self-esteem and value and the sense that, hey, they are a decent person. If they let the truth in, it's going to cause a massive crisis, which probably is necessary for you to navigate. If you're navigating in a world that is not real, that you have all kinds of what we call blind spots, which you have, you've really jerry-rigged reality in a way that doesn't actually conform to the world as it exists. You see what you want to see, not the way the world really is. You're going to have mountains of problems navigating and getting to where you want to go in life because you don't really, you can't anticipate what's really happening. You're always mystified by what's happening because it doesn't conform to your reality. And so it is, uh, that's maybe our biggest challenge as, as human beings, and that is to confront the truth, to try to really determine what is our mission in life, and then to face the truth about where we are now relative to where we really want to go, and then take appropriate action, expend energy in that direction to close the gap. But facing the truth, that might be our greatest single challenge because we all think we have the real world, you know, by the tail. We, it, we own the reality. We see the world as it is and everybody else is a little bit nutty because they don't see the world as we do. And that's the issue we all face. So speaking in that terms, if you talk a lot about change as well and, and thinking outside the box, um, is central to some of the themes that you talk about in high performance. So if that's, and that, and I would say that that certainly is true and yet change is hard for everybody, especially in light of what you just talked about, where we can deceive ourselves more than anything else, because we trick ourselves into believing that what we see is real, as opposed to maybe what's actually real in our, in our existence in the world or the world we're trying to achieve into, whether that's financial or, or physical or anything else. So how does how do people step into change, which means they're growing into uh, the the uh, uncomfortable, getting outside of their comfort zone? How do we how, how do human beings do that then if we're so prone to self-deception? 
Well, again, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, we uh, change is difficult, uh, very difficult. And the older you get, usually the harder it is to change. And it is because all of our interpretations of life, our, our mindset, I, I call it hardening of the categories, where we, uh, the older we get, the more rigid and flexible our thinking, if, unless you're fighting it all the time. So change normally occurs in discomfort. Something has to happen to awaken you, to confront the fact that if you continue on the path that you are on, something is actually going to be potentially a tragedy, whether it's a heart attack and you keep eating the food and you now have diabetes and you've been, you've refused to change your diet, you refused, you just assume you're going to live forever. And all of a sudden now, you've been confronted with the fact that you're not just pre-diabetic, you're fully diabetic and all kinds of issues. And if you don't change your ways, you probably are not going to, you may lose your eyesight, you may lose a limb, and you see the reality. But that's a terrible, how do you get people to look at that? before this unbelievable collision occurs. So we spend, um, you know, at the Institute, we, we spend a lot of time trying to help people understand that almost no growth occurs in human beings without going outside our comfort zone. We love the same, we love routine, and we don't like to be pushed outside our comfort zone. But unless you get pushed, either from life itself or from a powerful influencer in your life, something rings a bell and you realize, hey, wait a minute, I need to confront this. This is absolute lunacy. I'm not going to allow this to happen without, you know, I, I've been telling myself a story that is flawed. And I'm the architect of that story. And if I don't change my story, that will become my destiny. So at the Institute, we spend hours trying to get people to look at the story they've been telling themselves that has not led to change. And they look at it and they look at all the false premises and all the crazy, almost childlike logic that they've used to, um, to be okay with it and, and not to change. And then we have them kind of connect that change to something, to a purpose that actually is far bigger than just themselves, it has nothing to do with them. It might be their family. It might be a cause that is what we call a, a transcendent purpose, something that is really much bigger. You're not really going to change for you, but you might change for to give a, a better example to your son or daughter or whatever, someone you care about that change is possible, whether it's drinking too much or driving too fast or whatever it is. And so we have them then begin to build a new story, a new story that actually touches their spirit, gives them inspiration, hope, and, uh, and tied to a purpose that actually is almost undeniably important and they begin to develop rituals around the new story to help that, that change actually manifest itself. And it takes about, about 90 days for a change to actually be 
conquered and actually converted into an automatic habit. So you no longer have to fight it. So we put people on a 90-day mission. We're armed with a new story, armed with a set of rituals that they complete every day, whether it's journaling or um, they keep track of all the things they've done and haven't done. And it's called quantification in the research world. And we had an enormous number of people, very high as high as 80% of people would complete the mission. And it's because we tied purpose and truth. And then they began to expand energy every day to close the gap between who they are now and where they want to go. But it is a difficult, but after you accomplish it, you have such a great feeling, uh, such a sense of liberation that, hey, in fact, I can control my life. I'm not at the mercy of my environment. And then we have you go to the next one. And there's another checklist of things you'd like to change. And until your final day, you're always on a 90-day mission to, to, to improve your, you know, your portfolio as a human being, your assets that you want to accomplish a lot, that you want to do it in the right way, and you want to be proud of who you are becoming. So uh, I, I always say this, that more important than what you achieve is who you're becoming as a consequence of the chase. We are born to chase. We're always going to chase something. Let's make sure we're chasing the right thing for the right reason. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.